You're listening to The Bunker New York, live on RBMA Radio. Hello, uh, I'm your host, Brian Kasnick, on The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. We're going to be with you for the next two hours, and today we're joined by synth mastermind techno veteran Mark Verbos. Uh, right now, you're listening to his track In the Back Room off of his Walk the Distance EP on The Bunker New York, released earlier this year. Um, I'll have some other bunker updates for you later, but for now, I'm going to play a few tracks and we'll be joined by Mark in about half an hour. Again, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.
listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. Right now, uh, this is one of the tracks off of the new series of, I don't know what to call them, Slash 25, 12 inches coming out on Plus 8 with no artist listed. Um, before that, Derek Plesleko with In the Clouds. It's an upcoming release on The Bunker New York, probably out sometime next Next year in the spring, started off the show with Mark Verbos in the back room off of his EP on the Bunker New York, and we will be joined very shortly, around 4.30, by Mark, who's going to do a live set on a 909 and his own designed and built Verbos Electronics synthesizers. Again, this is the Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.
listening to The Bunker New York on RVMA Radio. Uh, this is Brian Kasnick. I've been playing some records. Uh, the one you're hearing now is a Tim Xavier remix of Mark Verbos, released on Limited 400, Tim Xavier's label a while back. Before that, uh, Randomer with Huh on Lies. And before that, one of the new uh, Plus 8 mystery records. Uh, we have a very busy December at the bunker. For those of you in New York, we've got a party this Saturday, December 5th at Goodroom with the Black Madonna, Derek Plazleko, Ital, and Halal. We have a party next Saturday, December 12th, the Bunker Limited at Trans Picos with Marco Shuttle and Coward. And we're doing a New Year's Eve party, as always, at Trans Picos with LA4A Patrick Russell, Nahal Ramchandani, Ken Meyer, and myself. More info on all of that and all of our activities at thebunkerny.com. Uh, now, coming up, we have Mark Verbos live in the studio. He's going to do a completely live set from his own Verbos Electronics modules and a Roland 909 and a mixer. Looks like that's all he's got here. So for the next hour or so, you'll be listening to Mark Verbos. When he's done, we'll do an interview. You are listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.
to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. For the past hour, you are listening to a live, completely live improvised set from Mark Verbos of Verbos Electronics. Um, right now, a track from the new Anthony Child, aka Surgeon album, uh, electronic recordings from the Maui jungle. And uh, yeah, let's interview Mark, who really likes to talk, so hopefully this will be easier than the interviews <laughs> usually go. Um, we uh, always kind of start off by talking about the gear. I, I, I believe our fans and yours are into gear, so why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit about your setup? Okay. Um, hello, everybody. <laughs> in, uh, well, in case maybe some of the listeners don't know anything about me, um, What's a little bit different about the, the setup that I use when I do performances is that the primary instrument is actually one that uh, was designed by me and is manufactured by my company, Verbus Electronics. So um, it's a Eurorack format modular synthesizer, which is all the rage these days. I've heard. <laughs> um, so uh, over the years, Many of them that I've been playing um, live shows, I've used lots of different stuff. Um, and in the beginning, 20 years ago or whatever, um, I was using um, only analog synthesizers and, and uh, drum machines. And at that time, the only things that were available were vintage already then. Um, it was funny, we, in, in the early 80s, they made all these instruments that nobody wanted in the 80s and then in the <laughs> 90s we were buying them up and um and thought they were really really old i, I bought my my 909 in in uh 1993 and i thought can you believe this thing is 10 years old this old piece of junk <laughs> were they expensive even then or was that could you still i'm sure expensive not expensive compared to what they are now but did they were they still junk then or were 
Uh, well, nine, uh, a 909, for instance, was not particularly cheap when it was new. It was, you know, it's a substantial thing. Like, it's made out of metal, and it's pretty <laughs> solid. It was, uh, I think, about $1,200 new in 83, which you have to also account for the inflation. I mean, $1,200 was worth a lot more right. 30 years ago. Um, and then by the... They, they were discontinued basically like a year later or two years later. And by the end of the 80s, you, I think you buy them for next to nothing. Like right. $20 or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, primarily because of the... Uh, this book that Mark Vale wrote in the early 90s called Vintage Synthesizers, which I'm told, actually he told me, I met him for the first time <laughs> this year, and he told me that that um, when he named the book Vintage Synthesizers, no one had ever used the word vintage to describe a synthesizer before <laughs> because the idea, the idea of wanting to have an old one was absurd by the... Uh, the thought of the time because in the in the 60s and 70s synthesizers were incredibly expensive like as much as a house kind of expensive and only rich like celebrities or universities had them yeah i feel like most of the electronic music coming out then uh no matter how big of an artist you were you had to have some kind of affiliation with a university that had a studio because right. nobody <laughs> owned these things and, and no one had gotten the idea yet to make like um club music using the synthesizer <laughs> you know in in uh in those days it was all academia so that um changed a little bit in the 70s when Giorgio Moroder came in the picture and started to make disco it, it used synthesizers and then the idea of this chugging um like an analog sequencer that sort of automatically gives you this loop of 16th notes bouncing down you know bouncing along right when he made i feel love then it kind of uh i guess it was probably a duh moment for the whole world like, <laughs> oh yeah that makes a lot of sense <laughs> that's what these things are good for <laughs> yeah but um you know in, in uh in the modular stuff at was was the only way in the beginning and then by the by the 80s everything i think that that a lot of the users found that the that a, a modular was good for for making sound effects and for making experimental music but if they were trying to make a pop song it was a lot easier for them to use something that was a bit pre-configured had presets had um some kind of direction already put into it so they they would take uh they would buy a Yamaha DX7, which did a really good electric piano sound and some bell sounds, but had a lot of presets. There were people trading, trading like universities sometimes traded away modulars that they paid fifty thousand dollars for for a DX7, which was like eight hundred bucks or something. <laughs> so, so, so uh, in the eighties, there was there was no interest in this kind of stuff, and then in the nineties, because of the rise of of techno and house music. A lot of people like me or my age who were just getting into I'm about 40 so at the time in the early 90s when all of this stuff was starting to really catch on then we were all out there trying to get the instruments that were used to make 
tracks records or make um, whatever, you know, 808 state record or something. Right. And we, we would learn. In those days, it was like folklore to find out um, this is a TR-909 or this is a TB-303 or whatever because right. there wasn't there wasn't yet uh, an internet and there was there was I mean there was but it didn't have any content right and, and there the, wasn't, rec- the records had no real information on them either yeah occasionally you'd find uh, a record from Germany that had like a picture of a 303 close up or something <laughs> but if you don't know what it is then you wouldn't know what it is so it wouldn't wow. really help you um, so really um, it kind of a, a black art thing where you the only way you could find out was about which instruments were used for what or whatever were from like other people so I made friends with some guys who were uh, five or ten years older than, than I was who were DJs and were importing records from from Europe and every week I'd get together with them and we listen to the records and they'd tell me that this is a that sound is a 303 or that sound is a... And was this in Chicago or...? Uh, in Milwaukee. Right? Milwaukee, yeah. right. And it turned out that some of the guys that I met in 92 or whatever um, were... became really significant people in the big picture, like um, Woody McBride or um, DJ Hyperactive and guys Woody from Drop Bass. Woody put out your first record, right? Drop Bass now... Well... Actually, it's kind of a funny story. Like, I made, I um, I made, uh, I made a record in Woody's studio in Minneapolis, and it was supposed to be a drop bass network record, and they even advertised that the record was coming out. And then, one drop, one of the guys from Drop Bass got into a kind of feud with a friend of mine, and the only means he had for uh, stopping. Or for doing anything to this other guy was to stop to cancel my record, so <laughs> it didn't come out. And then I ended up putting it sort of like I'll show you. So I put it out myself and um, didn't sell a particularly large number of records. But um, was that the beginning of Simple Answer? No, that, that uh, actually I, I put it out on. Uh, I sort of created a label with my friend at the time, and we called it Incorporated, which. We never did another release because we lost our shirts on it. So, <laughs> it's just, uh, but I mean, that was in those days the the whole idea of participating in like a a scene that was all around the world seemed it seemed distant to me, and it seemed like something that um, other people maybe were invited to, and I wasn't, or something like that. It just seemed really right. far away, and I was living in a place that that I think that that kids growing up in in Milwaukee I mean it's it's small enough place that we're programmed to think that anywhere else on earth is probably way cooler so if you hear about like what's happening in New York or what's happening in London or Frankfurt or whatever you think everything that's happening in those places is great and everything that's happening at home is crap and then you know after traveling around the world a little bit I realized that I was incredibly lucky to grow up around the people that I did because right because the Midwest rave techno scene early on is, I mean, legendary now. It's yeah, where... and for me to to be like a seventeen year old kid in Woody McBride's studio, <laughs> like making a record was pretty like uh, you know fortunate. But you know, it's 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 easy to get to get lost in the idea of um, like how cool we are. 
because of what we're born into. You know, plenty of people who are born in places that other people move to have an attitude like they're they're more important people because they're like from New York or whatever. Yeah, I've definitely you know? encountered that in New York. I've only been here for 20 years, so <laughs> one of these days I'll get respected in New York. Yeah. But anyway, back to the gear. The, um, so uh, I, I've been involved, but in the early 90s I started collecting all this stuff and making music with it. And along with that came, uh, I had an interest in, in electronics. So I started out just collecting old gear and repairing it. And then I started uh, building DIY special devices myself, just for myself. And over the course of a long time, I don't know, 20 years of doing it or something, um, I got to be um, pretty connected in the the world of synthesizers and synthesizer building and whatever. So, um, kind of concurrently with my music production, I was always interested in electronics and always building synthesizers. So, uh, a couple of years ago, I moved that into an actual commercial endeavor and as you know of course but maybe people out there don't know so um so it's been how long with verbose electronics now it's we launched the product in january of 2014 so it's coming up on two years so it's a kind of a whole lifetime of working on synths and stuff that led up to that but at what point did you decide that you wanted to like start making your own modules to sell commercially like how long did that take from deciding that to well it's a series of really confusing like overlapping decisions because for a number of years and i i was thinking about how it would i probably even said this to you at some point how cool it would be in my opinion to do my live performances just using gear that i built myself right but at the time that i originally had that idea like you know, 10 years ago or something, I I was intending, you know, maybe I'll just build all like one-off stuff and just use that. But um, I, I guess what happened, the reason I got into the business in this fashion was because I went to the, the NAMM show, which is the trade show for um, for music equipment, like in, in California, where when I was a kid and I was reading keyboard magazine or electronic musician or whatever they would have the nam issue and this was like the big moment of the year when when all the gear nerds get excited about what new things were launched right. so it was like a dream of mine to go to the nam show sometime <laughs> <laughs> this this trade show and of course once you've gone you realize it's not like a dream but um <laughs> when i went to the nam show like i don't know eight or nine years ago um i I realized then that there was a whole community. I knew a lot of people from over the internet in synthesizers, but I didn't really. I used to say um, that that I never had the opportunity to have like a one-on-one, -on -one, like face-to-face -face conversation about synthesizers or electronics with anyone because everybody that I knew who was really as deep into it as I was, I knew over the internet, not in person. And then I went to the NAMM show and I realized that there that there were so many people that I known for years over the internet and they had no idea what they looked like and I was meeting them face to face and then and there was a whole business and they were building they were building their lives around making instruments and connecting with each other and there was distribution and I kind of compared the business of synthesizers I all my experience that I had with techno records I just applied that same philosophy so I thought 
I could turn this into a real product line if I had a kind of pressing and distribution deal, which is what I ended up getting with. Yeah, it's all it's all kind of similar in a way, and I think the same way that people used to, and in a way still do, go to record stores to hang out with other people who are really into records and learn about new records from the people who work at the record store. Absolutely. Now, it used to be that people who were playing the bunker would come to town and they wanted, you know, they wanted a list of all the record stores and they wanted to go meet all the record store people and hang out. And now everybody's like, they go to control. Yeah. Exactly. And then the next day they go to control again. <laughs> and it's just, and control, if for those of you who don't know, is a modular synthesizer store uh, in Brooklyn. And that's, that to me, that's become almost more of a cultural hub than the the record stores these days that's i mean i go in i don't buy equipment myself but anytime i go in there i feel like there's six or seven people either affiliated with my record label or the party in some way it's just like that's kind of the hub now. yeah pretty much and and, <laughs> and um also yeah i think isn't there somebody working at Control who's on your record label <laughs> at this point? There's there's a lot. Well, there's Nahal who works. He works for me, and he works at Control. Um, who is there somebody that works at Control? It's on my... Uh, I, I, I'm never totally clear on who's working there and, and who's, who's hanging just out? hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> totally. I think if you hang out there long enough, then... They Dar- just put you Darren on the hires you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... I think it's a it's a pretty um, it was a pretty smooth transition from because the record stores are all like going out of business so you know there has to be some sort of cultural uh, you know like a an embassy for the world traveling uh, techno nerd it's and that's really what it is it's really it's been really interesting to watch that like how and how did that happen it seems like to revolve around the Eurorack in a way like when did when did the euro rack come about and why like what's so powerful about that that people are connecting to it so strongly well i think there are two avenues to go with this question the first one is which uh is the answer to that question directly which is that the the reason that euro rack is so revolutionary is because in the original uh, modular synthesizer world from 30 or or more years, 40 years ago, every brand didn't, it only really worked with that brand. So if you saw a big cabinet of modular stuff, it was, the whole cabinet was one brand. Right. And you're, when, uh, when Dopefer made the, their system in the mid 90s, they didn't really invent the format because the, the rack itself is a, a DIN standard, a, a German official standard system. And in Germany, you can buy the, the Eurorack enclosures just uh, like a Conrad. It's like practically a hardware store. It's like a Radio Shack meets hardware store. Okay. <laughs> and um, so that was kind of an obvious choice for him. But the fact that you can make this Frankenstein monster of, a, of an instrument where it's all mixed together is the revolution it allows there to be brands that are like a random guy in like the middle of nowhere who makes one module and he makes them all one at a time that can happen because he can anybody who buys that can put it in a system with modules from other brands right if if the each brand had to make the entire product line or the entire instrument then you you couldn't have micro like a you know, indie labels, you'd have to, you'd only have 
the big the big guys. Right. The second part of that, the second answer to that question is, in my opinion, how it relates to techno. Because um, when I, in the '90s, when I was buying modular synths, and this was one of the things that I was really interested in, I didn't know very many people who were interested in modular synths and made techno. Most of the people that I knew in the synthesizer world were older guys who liked space rock or um, right. soundtrack music or whatever. So there was the I up until recently, I feel like there was this idea that the only thing you could do with a modular synthesizer is make noise or or effects type stuff, experimental there's, music. There's a lot of people that still like that's kind of the bad rap that modulars and have. And it's, it, it is a, a situation that a lot of people find it really hard to, um, to get anything done when they have the modular in front of them. It's, it's like a, a, a hole for them to, like, all their time to disappear into and have no finished product. Yeah, I've which seen is that. Okay. <laughs> which is okay. I think that um, a lot of our customers are, are hobbyists in the truest sense. They're not... They're not like, um, they're not trying to, they, they come home from their job and they put on headphones or speakers and they patch up something and they have a great time. And once in a while they yell out to someone they live with, come here, listen to this. And then when they, they get to the end of the session, they turn the machine off and they go to bed and yeah. they don't ever consider what they can get from it. Like they don't want to record something yeah, and make a not, career. It's not about that. That's it's about not the, the experience. Yeah. It's more of a live interaction with music uh, instead of just buying records and listening to them. It's more you're interacting with these machines and yeah. Well, what I uh, the evolution for for uh, electronic music to go from a situation where in in the beginning of this for me anyway, everyone that I knew was a DJ. That was the if you got so into the music that you were that that you wanted to like you know, reach the highest level. Then you started DJing, you, you, know, you bought your 1200s and you started right. stockpiling records. But it's along with the collapse of the record business, I feel like, um, was the rise of a different way of thinking. It's almost like a return to the, the idea of um, before there were records, uh, you know, music time was when the someone in your family pulled the guitar out of the corner and you like around, the, around the circle sang songs together. It's, Getting, in my opinion, it's it's a kind of renaissance of people making electronic music because for the first time in history, it's democratized to a point where it's actually practical to have synthesizers and and recording equipment and just do it for the fun of doing it, not because it's your job or because right. you're going to try to make a career out of it or whatever. Yeah, there's not as high a barrier to entry either. Like you can... I guess because you're buying each module and it becomes an expensive hobby, but you can just kind of... It's shrouded. So you buy <laughs> you buy each module for like a couple hundred bucks and you think you're not spending a lot of money. And then, you know, you look at this wall and you think, wow, there actually is like $20,000 wrapped up in this. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of the people on my record label. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that the, the, the reason that... The reason that, that synthesizers are, are important to to musicians or to techno musicians now is because it's a totally different experience. I mean, people will argue with you about how great analog is and and about how that 
the sound is so good and analog synthesizers are so fat. But that doesn't mean, it really doesn't matter because once, as you know, if you listen to the finished product, you listen to a, a full mix, you couldn't tell if it was an analog synth or it wasn't. But the experience of using it, I think, you know, we spend so much time in front of computers that, that a lot of people are finding the desire to break away from that and hold on to something and reach out and touch something. And there's a physical element and it leads, the instrument leads you in, in directions that, that you might not have gone. You know, it's, it's, it's bringing some of that experiment, you know, the, the early days of electronic music, everything was experimental, but that's also because there wasn't, there weren't genres to like fall into. There weren't, um, right. there weren't cliches yet. And so, um, we're in a much harder time now because pretty much everything has been done in some way or another. So really what we're trying to do is break free of our, our, um, our tendencies or break free of our, our commitment to doing the same thing over and over again. Right. And I guess getting back to the setup, cause we have only about five minutes left here. Um, I, I, you always seem to use, or maybe when I see you play, you always have the 909 or some other Roland machines alongside your modules. What's, what's the reasoning behind that? Or why, why not just use your modules or why, like what's the connection between the old, the ancient Roland machines and your, the new stuff that you're building. Well, some of our friends will, would argue with me about this, but the 909 rules. <laughs> Who would argue with that? Yeah, some, I, I've gonna... actually been told. I've been told by some people that that um, it's really tiring, and they're so sick of hearing the sounds. And some of them have even calculated how many 909 kicks they think they've heard in their lifetime, because you know how many how many techno records and how many years and how, whatever. But it's the best kick. I mean, any. Anytime somebody brings a 909 to the club and you hear that 909 kick over a club, like just the 909 yeah. through a club sound system, like every record's trying to sound that good. And exactly, I don't know do. what it is, but I, I've actually done it, like put a 909 kick next to, in a big sound system, next to a sample of a 909 kick and it didn't, the sample didn't <laughs> sound as good. I don't know what it is. There's just some, some magic to it coming out of that machine. But um, I have lots of old, uh, Rolling drum machines, and uh, this one's my favorite. I was told recently that the 909 was out of style and the 808 was really the one now, but as far as I'm concerned, there's just no comparison. Right, they're totally different machines. Um, but So you, you basically like using it because it's just awesome. Because it works. <laughs> and when when you use something for 20 years or more, you you develop this, like, relationship with it where you actually know what's going to happen before you reach out and touch the control. I mean, in a way, I, I can do things with it that I don't even have to listen to it and cue it up before I drop it in. I just know what I'm going to get automatically. Well, you know the instrument so well. That's, yeah. that's your instrument. That's, exactly. Well, that's your instrument too. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think we should probably wrap up the interview as the show is almost over here. I've been listening to various tracks in the background. Interview ran a little long, but thank you so much for joining us. The set was amazing. Um, do you want to shout out where, where people can get more information on you, the, the modules, uh, whatever. I think everybody just goes to Facebook for everything now. Um, uh, Urbis Electronics is on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Um, we also have a website, um, 
rubuselectronics.com. Um, we, yeah. <laughs> and people can buy your record that you put out on our label on our website. Absolutely. Hopefully there'll be more of those coming soon. Um, yeah. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, this has been, I'm Brian and that's Mark Verbos. Thank you for joining us on The Bunker New York. We have a few more minutes here. Again, this is The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. Thanks for joining us.